0: This is The Land, with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing the 2020 film, Writers of Justice. Helen, kick us off.
1: Yes, so I kind of feel this film very much speaks for itself. So I don't really, I feel like what I will say is very obvious, Um, but essentially it's to do with the trauma of contingency. A, young woman and her mother are riding on a train. And um, there's a terrible accident, which might not be an accident, which takes out the mother. And the various people involved um, in this event, the father of the girl and the husband of the woman, and another uh, man who was on the train, um, find in various ways, um, ways to deal with the trauma of contingency so i mean massive spoiler alert although it's pretty obvious i think from the beginning this is going to be the outcome because it's very like it's very um standardly written in terms of a screenplay so i guess it's not that it's predictable but it's very much it's very well written but it does very much follow the kind of um technique let's just say so you know we audiences do get used to to these um to these happenings you know if it starts from one way we can intimate that the opposite is going to to be the eventual kind of realization of the main characters so so this terrible event happens but really there are all these different characters um uh, a man who's a kind of hacker and his associates who who uh, spend their time creating kind of code and algorithms that they believe can predict everything because nothing's random there's a number behind everything from the young girl who who lost her mother, who tries to kind of recreate a timeline of things that happened, like um, you know you see this when people write screenplays, they do their kind of like you know post it scene and then reorder it. So she tries to kind of create a timeline on her wall in her bedroom. And then the husband of the woman who dies is a um, is a, a in the Danish army. So he he tries to seek vengeance along with these people that he associates with against this group that it's. Um, deemed by the hackers, that they've proven that this group is, is at fault, that this wasn't an accident, it couldn't have been an accident. And there are all these kind of things that um, lead these characters to, to be certain that it wasn't just a random event. From somebody who um, was on the train just before leaving, who uh, ate a very expensive sandwich, just a bite of it and threw it in the bin. How could you do that? It's totally illogical. you know He must have had something to do with it. Um, to the fact that... The um, girl and her mother weren't supposed to be on the train. They were, it would have otherwise been a regular school day and the young girl would have cycled to school, but her her bike had just been stolen. Um, And there's sort of a nice kind of um, prologue and epilogue related to this bike story about gangs in Denmark, stealing uh, bikes in Denmark to then sell them in places like Estonia and Eastern Europe. So all these random things that, you know, were unusual to have happened. And therefore, suggest that this this event was um, out of the ordinary in terms of out of the ordinary randomness of the universe. And there are all sorts of different ways in which the film addresses this theme. So there's um, you know the theme is really the impossibility of contradiction, of antagonism, of, of contingency, and the attempt to overcome it in various ways. We have a, a, a priest, I always find it interesting, you know, the kind of like Scandinavian. Uh, what do you call them, vicars? I don't know what denomination of Protestantism they are, but they wear these like weird Tudor collars. I don't know. Watch too much Wallander. There's always these people with the collars in Wallander. But um, yeah, so she gives a she gives a sermon at the funeral about how we're always trying to you know make sense out of randomness. And I guess the point, you know, the very obvious point is that it's it's much more traumatic to um, understand that one has been the victim of something totally contingent that there is no meaning that there is no um you know this was not some kind of um uh, you know karma like retribution or it wasn't the fault of somebody um but it was totally totally random we'd rather that there was a big other out there ordering the world and a big other whom we could blame or whom um we could beg for mercy but really, you know, there isn't. And really, you know, in in a sense, that is that's that's the universal. That's what we all share. That we are subject to contingency. And no matter you know the riches we accumulate, um, which can in a material sense mitigate against some of the horrors of of life, but really the existential um, thing that cuts through everything, the randomness of everything, we ca- we can't overcome. And often the um, pursuit to overcome it. I know somebody asked uh, sent an email to us on the the like. Gmail this week about um, totalitarianism asking us to talk about you know why we say so often that our contemporary um, political condition is is totalitarian well it's this, it's this attempt to totalize this attempt to cover over antagonism with a fake wholeness that really doesn't um, manage to be whole at all because the whole includes contradiction and so when we when we totalitarianize um we create enemies we create scapegoats who hold the kind of the um hold that contradiction hold that lack and we often um do things like the characters in this film um end up killing a lot of people potentially you know this the the people that they kill are kind of um criminals but they don't deserve to be killed for this this reason and um you know and i i mean it's interesting we can talk maybe the question of justice as a phenomenon anyway whether it's ever possible to get justice but um yeah so so these characters go on this quest they 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 find through their hacking algorithm somebody who he doesn't quite fit the criteria in terms of a sort of a um a cctv camera image but he's just about similar enough so he'll do the job and they go on this absolute kind of carnage like quest to take out this gang um inflicting a lot of damage on themselves as well but it's all meaningless there's no reason for it because um, the pursuit of this gang is all based on a um an opening up of the criteria of their algorithm to prove that this individual um was guilty so yeah just just a film about confronting contradiction and i think it uses the film form really really well in order to do that by making us as viewers kind of believe that there is a reason that there isn't for this accident
0: Incidentally, the two top Christian denominations in Estonia are Eastern Orthodox and Lutheran. Nina, you're up. <laughs> um,
2: right. So, yes, I, I quite enjoyed this film. I, I think at the level of its form, it, it seemed to me to be a combination of a kind of uh, a revenge film or a vengeance movie, uh, a buddy film, an action film um a bit of a black comedy it has these kind of psychoanalytic or or uh, this kind of almost like therapeutic dimension that the or a lot of the or all of the characters actually in some ways are um evidently or it explicit, become explicitly uh, obviously broken or lacking or something traumatic has happened in their past for them to be in this um situation either as friends or as um uh seeking vengeance and they they kind of come together in this kind of uh uh sort of broken jigsaw sort of way um including the the daughter who's sort of relatively normal in some ways but also like everybody has her own anxieties about her in in this case about her weight and uh and other issues and obviously she's traumatized by the death of her mother and is also looking for explanation and and meaning and and in that sense it's it's very beautifully drawn the characters are very separately intriguing and together they create this kind of um very interesting sort of almost like rd langian type of kind of anti psychiatric sort of project of um sort of yeah a kind of wild analysis or a wild uh, therapeutic moment. And, and obviously therapy and analysis are not the same. I've been having this long conversation today about the difference between the therapeutic tendency in contemporary uh, life and the analytic uh, uh, position, which is not uh, uh, the same, uh, I think. I was defending the idea that analysis is doing something different from mainstream therapy. Um, there there's a kind of moment where you sort of think that the film is kind of like a wizard of oz type thing actually where everyone has their definitive lack whether it's kind of uh, courage in the case of one of the guys who can't quite bring himself to to shoot um or uh the 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 main guy who's played by the guy that everyone fancies who looks like a psychopath the mad somebody that's mickelson right everybody thinks this man is like the most beautiful man who ever lived or something but i mean it's interesting that they (laughs) they play him in this kind of um how do you put it like they really accentuate the coldness of his character and i believe he plays other sort of similarly psychopathic um characters um but that's not all he is right and in a way his character too breaks um, at a sort of crisis moment, and and so there's an interesting depiction of of the the different kinds of crises that people suffer, um, and I think in that way it's quite beautiful. I I struggle as always with not just with this film, but with films that have this action dimension because I I, I find watching action in the sense of let's say like violence or in, or violent encounter, I mean on some level very disturbing. Like I don't like scenes that depict um a particularly kind of meaningless or indifferent murder or death and and death is used in this film almost in a comedic way or an ironic way and there's no evident um comeback or punishment you know and it's not that I want to want to see the people punished but i i i really find somehow very difficult action films that that use death in this kind of indifferent or um uh, ironic way um, and that can be in art house films, it can be in mainstream films. it could be James Bond, it could be tarantino whatever like i i I don't know something about it really troubles me and i there were moments where people were left and retaken again in the film and and the the bits where they left people on the side of the road or they they abandoned people i I also found really really <laughs> difficult to deal with. I wanted to know whether the person was okay um but the thing I was thinking about why why I don't like the depiction of action apart from the violent aspect is. It's actually because it's because it's acting um it's it's and this sounds very stupid of course it's acting everything is acting in a film but something like when you watch gymnastics or something and there's a kind of um you know incredible beauty and in performance and sort of physical excellence and you know in in the depiction of what what a body can do and and something like you know you get it in gymnastics and skating and and whatever all these different sports um and somehow The fact that I know that someone is pretending to be physical or, you know, I don't know, shooting a gun is also just quite boring to watch. I I just find like automatically puts me off anything that has action in it because it's like someone pretending to do something, which is, which is very stupid because people are pretending to do lots of different things in films all the time. But for some reason, action just is a blank uh, thing for me. So um, in that sense, I, I didn't like the, the violence in the action, but, but, you know, so what, I mean, I, at the same time, I, f- I feel yet another tension or paradox in, in my appreciation of, of art and expression, because on the one hand, I'm, I'm all for the most transgressive and extreme depictions of human life in film. I'm a huge fan of Pasolini's Salo, for example, I would defend it to the death. I don't think art house cinema should be censored, um, in any way, particularly at the same time as I object strongly to the effects of, let's say, pornography on the brain. I don't like, as I say, like the, the depiction of death as indifferent, meaningless or ironic. Um, and I struggle with these kind of tensions in, in my own relation to what I think can and should be expressed and the meaning behind those those things. As if, um, you know, my critical or aesthetic judgment somehow uh you know, would push me to defend something, but not the other, but this would make my position wildly inconsistent. So I, I don't know. I leave, I leave as an open question, something that I think about all the time um, because I'm very, you know, strongly in favor of defending um, free expression and artistic exploration. And I don't think these things should be either understood literally or censored or whatever, but at the same time, I, I do find some of this very difficult to, um, to deal with, even just on a on a personal level.
0: So. All right, it's my turn. So, Writers of Justice is a Danish film starring Mads Mikkelsen as a Danish soldier. While Mikkelsen is overseas on duty, his wife dies in a train accident. This forces him to come home. For much of the rest of the film, Mikkelsen and the other characters try to make sense of what happened. Mickelson's daughter makes a tree on the wall of her room with all the events leading up to the accident. Her bicycle was stolen, so her mom had to drive her to school. On the way, they found out Mickelson's deployment had been extended. Distraught over the news, her mom decided to take a day trip with her. They missed the first train they tried to take, but caught the second one. There the girl's mother is offered a seat by a man named Otto. She dies, and Otto lives. The mom would have survived if Otto hadn't offered her the seat. She would have survived if they hadn't missed the first train. She would have survived if Mickelson had come home on time. She would have survived if the girl's bike hadn't been stolen. So who is to blame? Is Otto, Mickelson, the bicycle thief? Otto feels like it's his fault. He thinks the train was bombed by a criminal gang. He tells Mickelson and they go on a quest for revenge together with a couple of Otto's friends. But even if the train was bombed, it's not as if the bombers were targeting Mickelson's wife they're not the reason she was on that train. Why are they more to blame for her death than any of these other people? Ultimately, you can always find more causes. Why did the Estonian girl want a bike in the first place? Why did Otto feel it was his duty to give up his seat? Why did Mickelson feel it was his duty to remain deployed? These people all learn to value these things from other people, and those people have their own causal backstories, and so on ad, fina- ad infinitum. The same goes for the gangsters. There are reasons they ended up in the gang. If you try to kill everyone who has anything to do with an event, you'll be killing people for an awfully long time. This is the main theme of the movie, but there are a lot of other things going on in it. At one point in the movie, Mickelson's daughter considers seeking comfort from religion. Mickelson tells her that religious people are stupid, but then he joins together with Otto in a quest for a secular, empirical explanation that is just as elusive and useless. At least the religious explanation was harmless, Mickelson's explanation gets a lot of people killed. The gang Mickelson targets tries to fight back, and that puts Mickelson's daughter in danger. He might have been better off telling himself his wife's death was all part of a divine plan. The revenge quest does have some unintended positive consequences. Otto's friendships with his buddies are fraying at the start of the film. Bringing Mickelson into the group helps the dynamic and saves those friendships. Along the way, the friends find and rescue a male prostitute, Mickelson takes the prostitute on as an au pair. It may have been a foolish mistake to go on the revenge quest, but it has many unexpected benefits. To conceal the revenge plot from Mickelson's daughter, Otto's friends impersonate psychotherapists. But the girl wanted to talk to therapists, and she seems to get a lot out of it. We cannot really know what consequences our actions will have. The person who taught Otto to give up his seat certainly could not have anticipated that this would get a girl's mother killed. This is probably the best argument against consequentialism in ethics. In real life, it's just too difficult to know what will result from most of the actions we take. The mental models of the world we make in our heads only work by simplifying things. At one point, the girl's boyfriend offers a model of the world. He argues that a person's occupation determines the way that person will solve problems. Mickelson is a soldier, and that means he's accustomed to violence. And that means he'll try to solve everything with violence. Mickelson responds by asking how bakers solve problems. The boyfriend, of course, has no answer to that. If a model is simple enough that we can use it with our monkey brains, it's too simple to cover everything. That doesn't make it useless. It probably is the case that Mickelson is trying to solve his problems with violence in part because he's a soldier, and that's what he knows. But when we get carried away and we start to think that we can give the universe meaning by explaining it, we get ourselves in trouble. At one point in the film, Mickelson is forced to confront the limits of our explanations. He feels that if he can't make things make sense, they don't matter. Otto gently corrects him. Things matter not because we can explain them, but because we have a relationship to them. Mickelson's life will feel meaningful if he builds meaningful relationships with the people around him. It will feel meaningless if he cannot. Mickelson doesn't need to find someone to blame to have meaning in his life. If he connects with his daughter, meaning will return. I got a lot out of this. As regular listeners know, my dad died of prostate cancer last summer. Without him, my mother struggles to have a sense of meaning. She sometimes goes looking for purpose in places that don't make much sense to me. The film reminded me to be forgiving with her, and encouraged me to help her make good connections. The best films are always the films you see at the right moment in life. You cooperate a little better with the film, and that allows it to reach a higher level. Most of the difference between a good film and a great film lies in the viewer and at the film. So whenever I see a great film, I consider myself lucky, not because great films are rarely made, but because I am rarely great enough to fully appreciate good films. Very
2: good. That's oh, so Oh, Benjamin, that's nice. so sweet. <laughs> it's, so, it's so lovely. <laughs> I feel like an arsehole
1: for making it all about, um, you know, transgression and aesthetics. <laughs> No, I did. I actually, I did find it very heartwarming, and obviously, that means that it actually they have to reduce all the death to comedy because it is quite brutal. And one thing, and I think you kind of touched upon it, Benjamin, is this idea of like um, in psychoanalysis, you call it enjoying your symptoms. So, obviously, I it was saying about you know the the error of um of of turning contradiction into opposition. So, you know, um, turning the contradiction this this random event into kind of a crusade to to cure this event of its contradiction so that, you know, um, it can be digested and understood as, you know, um, something that has some meaning at least. And of course, as you said, you know, there's there's secular solutions and religious solutions, but they're all the fucking same, you know, Um, God has descended to earth these days. And, you know, as you pointed out, the Mickelson character taking the piss out of the religious um, drive to, uh, you know, to, to, to do this, well, it's actually at least it, there's sort of an honesty to it and awareness to it. And it is actually a bit more harmless than, than like being, um, being rendered into this brute, revenge-seeking, um, secularist kind of approach. Um, and obviously, you know, in the century where God was officially dead, obviously in Time magazine, in the 20th century, you know, is God, is God dead? That famous uh, 1967 um, Time magazine cover. You know, the, the 20th century is the most violent century ever. So once God had definitively died, you know, we just have free reign to kill each other. But having said all of that, there is a thing of you know, the enjoy, enjoy your symptom, which is that there is this positive in whatever way we try to manage contradiction. And the overcoming of an attempt to overcome contradiction can also be really bad. <laughs> so at the end of the day, we're left with these, these symptoms that really define us because there is no beyond of contradiction. There's no beyond of trying to overcome contradiction. But what we can do is lower the stakes on them by enjoying them, by understanding their dynamic, and we've talked about that, desire, understanding, and bringing you know, questions of desire to consciousness so that we can lower the stakes on them. And the, the benefit that comes of their, their, their collective pursuit is the camaraderie, is the collectivity, and is the recognition. Um, eventually, you know, in the final scene, that they're all um, in different ways uh, on the sort of wild goose chase of life.
0: Hmm.
1: But yeah, it has to be Thinking done as a comedy, otherwise to... it wouldn't work. In that sense. Thinking about
0: what Nina said, you know, th- there's this character, Emmentaler, who I think is is kind of the stand-in for, for the audience in some ways, because the audience for this kind of revenge film, the people who really like that very hard, very masculine, you know, just kill people, take no prisoners kind of character... Uh, there are often people who are in real life a lot like Emmentaler. If they actually encountered death, they would be absolutely horrified by it. They're not people in any kind of physical shape to go and uh, <laughs> you know, you know, kill a bunch of people. And, and they've had very difficult lives. They've been bullied a lot. They've, they've had a hard time connecting with other people. They often get put down. Emmentaler is, is insulted regularly by his friends, all the way up, even including the final scene of the film, he is insulted by his friends and disparaged by his friends. And so he looks at a tough character like a Mads Mikkelsen character as a, a kind of a cathartic, cathartic version of what he himself wishes he could be. He wishes he could be this kind yeah. of hard guy who, who takes revenge on the people who wrong him. Uh, but by the end of the film, he's forced to confront the fact that that would not at all be a solution to his problems. And what's the solution? Well, it's having people who you know, affirm in some way uh, who he is and what he values you know who get him a french horn and invite him to play it yeah. and i i think perhaps that's the journey that the film is hoping the viewer will go on if the viewer is someone who just likes the kind of callous revenge film the viewer is someone who would really enjoy watching liam neeson in, in the taken movies or something like that you know, maybe by the end of the film they'll have a an emmentaler moment
2: yeah, I mean, I, I, as I say, I, I, I did enjoy the composition, like the the multiple types of film together thing. You know, I, mm-hmm. I thought, like that was kind of clever. I mean, it's very, it's very well done. It's very well put together. It's very well written. The characters are very well acted. I thought, you know, each of them were like very beautiful in their own way, and and yeah, I mean, and I think it's an interesting film about masculinity, precisely for the reasons you're describing, like this kind of the fantasy and the reality actually of the kind of purely macho man, the man who's driven purely by, you know. The violent solutions and and by revenge you know is is actually in practice let's say a terrible father, right, so he doesn't understand his daughter and it takes these other men who were kind of damaged in other ways, one because his um family um it died or his daughter died at least in a car crash that he was responsible for because he'd been drinking uh, another because um he was raped and abused as a child and and, and there's a there's a kind of very interesting moment where that that particular character uses that experience as a way of preventing greater violence it's quite a complicated thing, <laughs> he, you know and 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 he doesn't um repeat the cycle so when the um ukrainian uh rent boy in a sense offers himself because partly you, you think that's what he's used to doing um to the man then the man says no 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 thank you you know that he it's it's clear that he doesn't perpetuate the cycle of abuse in the, in the same way. Right. So there's clearly, it's clearly kind of an optimistic film in its kind of paradoxical, you know, bleakness and darkness, because yeah, I mean, I think precisely because it says not only are they moments of crisis, not only that people have terrible lives and terrible things happen for no reason, as, as Helen, you know, beautifully described, um, but that, yeah, but that there's also kind of unknown solutions and not full solutions, right? There's never a full solution, but there are ways of living beyond terrible things happening um, in unexpected ways. And it, it's always like this, this idea that life is very surprising. You know, you, it's better to stay around because something that you don't, you can't even imagine will happen and some encounter will happen. And And this is indeed, I think, what
1: happens in life if you if you keep living. <laughs> it's very true that's very true no I, I really like that thought actually yeah the um that one one not even that one um more good thing happened than bad things you know for it to be overall good but that just as there is the potential for negative contingency, there's also the possibility for positive contingency. And obviously there's, yeah. Um, Was it the speculative realist? I haven't read any of that stuff. That was a big thing, like about 10 years ago or longer. Yeah. Like, you know, like Quentin Mayer's and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and we, well, yeah, we talked about this with M- the Malami thing that like, you know, um, God, I can't remember. There's a, a book on Malami to wrote, written. I can't remember the exact. Um, this is a funny thing by the way. When my ex and I uh, first started going out. He was reading it, and he asked me to read it. And um, he is a philosopher, or whatever. And um, he he gave it to me, and I, I read the French version. And, I, and he he didn't believe that I um, had like read it and understood it in in the afternoon or whatever. <laughs> I think that's what started our relationship. Was it it's like oh, we actually like know and are interested in same, because it is a sort of a very niche book that you'd have to have a lot of grounding in the first place hmm. to get it. Anyway, so there you go. But isn't it, it, I, I think it was quite, it, it didn't fully like agree with all of it, but I thought it was very well written and uh, very interesting. And it's, you know, the, the idea that, um, oh gosh, I, oh gosh I, I literally can't remember the argumentation, but it's like um, how contingency, you know, how miracles, ah, I used to talk about this all the time and I can't remember the argumentation, but like um, how miracles kind of prove the non-existence of God, potentially. Maybe I'm getting it wrong. But yeah, I mean, obviously, there's, that's maybe an extrapolation from me. So don't take it from me. But there's something to do with... There's an interesting question yeah. about whether contingency is necessary, right? So it's a yeah, very complicated yeah. Yeah.
2: thing. I mean, yeah. contingency is a big problem for the early materialists. So the atomists, for example, you know, you have this idea that there are atoms and void. And it's it's a universe... Potentially with well, it is without god right it's it's one of pure matter it's one of, it's a kind of explanatory principle it's a kind of proto scientific it's not yet scientific in the way that we would understand it in in the modern sense but the the problem with atomism and so Epicurus comes along later as a, as another atomist and tries to solve the problem that atomism sets up is that there's no possibility for for chance right there's no possibility for something doing anything other than is already set by the by mm-hmm. the pattern. so they they introduced this idea of the clinamen, which is the swerve. So sometimes atoms do weird stuff, basically, Um, because a universe without the possibility of chance is basically like completely closed. It's like, you know, so it's, there's a kind of very interesting question about how chance features, like at what level chance features and how can we understand it? And and obviously this becomes an issue in quantum physics and and so on. But I think, you know, the way in which we understand chance in our own lives, you, you know, it occurs to me, Uh, you know, and the older I get, very interesting things happen. Not only do surprising things happen that that are completely unexpected, even when you think, oh, you know, I know what life is. I know, you know, and I think, I think in a way like being depressed or or being sad is a state of thinking that nothing will ever change, that that's in a way what characterizes it actually. Yeah, it is absolutely, yeah. You know, so you, you feel that you're stuck in I don't know, a place or a or a set of thoughts, and you can't i it, it's actually a lack of imagination in a weird way. And I don't mean that judgmentally. I don't mean to say, oh, if only people could just imagine their way out of depression. I'm not I'm absolutely not saying that. But I think there's something about the um experience of, you know, like the the winter before last, like not this one, the one before. I definitely was falling down into a kind of very depressive um state, as as I'm sure many people were during lockdown. And it, it wasn't kind of in a way so directly caused by lockdown, but it, but in a way it kind of also was, it was sort of, you know, and I ended up in thought loops. I ended up in like the sort of feeling like every day was the same. There was this kind of, um, absolute sort of stasis, which is also like civil war as the Gambin points out, but like this kind of, um, inability to imagine anything uh, new happening. And, and so but one of the other things that happens, I think, when you get older, or at least is my experience, is people come back, like people you knew like 15 or 20 years ago sort of reappear in your life. And they may have come to some similar conclusions through different paths or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's actually an mm-hmm. extraordinary experience to have re-encounters, even if it was someone you, you sort of only met briefly, like 15 years ago or something like that, or, or even if you knew them a bit. Um, and then they sort of re-emerge in your life differently. Um, and there's all these sorts of things that happen, and you're like, oh, how intriguing, you know. So I mean, I think I think um, Dasha from Red Scare has a sort of similar comment about, you know, don't don't kill yourself. Something R-word might happen, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is you know the the, the sort of cool girl way of saying it. But you know, I, th- I do I do think this argument from surprise. So so I think one of the things is when you're feeling very low is to somehow leave open the space for the possibility that you can imagine something else happening yeah. even if even if you can't imagine what that is and of course you can't because it's kind of contingent you
1: don't know who or what will happen right yeah you've um really defined like depression very well, according to like the Freudian model, you know, the morning melancholia yeah. model in, ter- in terms of how, like, you know, there's this sort of mourning is sort of, a, there's a, a gap in the chain of signifiers and melancholia sort of like a stasis within that position, but like, yeah, it's, it's about being able to kind of knit together that chain and re reimagine in a way we re- reconnect yourself with that kind of chain of signifiers. But I was talking about um, autism today with somebody and um, there's this sort of new theory that autism is a separate subjective structure. And how um, the autistic person relates the absolute and the universal is is different from neurotic people or other people who are otherwise more kind of like um, closer closer to neurosis or whatever. But um, basically, the, the autistic individual almost like every every encounter they have is a particular. It doesn't connect to the universal. So. Um, Whereas somebody might when, when a neurotic person thinks of, of a dog, they think of the concept of dog, but for an autistic person, it might be just immediately a, a dog and then an, another dog that they can imagine. So they're not connected to this continuity as much. And so this idea of like, um, you know, maybe uh, you made know, this this kind of image of an autistic child that's very ordered, and if something's out of out of the order, suddenly everything is thrown into, into chaos. So it's interesting that like maybe that experience of like oscillation um, or the, the, the stress of everything potentially falling apart because things things change all the time. But I wonder how they relate to the positive contingency because as I say, it, it is interesting though because like all of this, th- these ideas about contingency, which we talk about often sounds very negative and it is kind of negative. because you know, death is part of the contradiction and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, we, we never really conceptualize the, the positive side of contingency. And I guess, I mean... Um, I was just texting back and forth to see if I could remember the the, um, mayosu argument, but I can't quite, but I'm going to go out on a limb and think it's to do with the fact that it's sort of a logical proof for miracles, which is the upside of what we've been talking about. Miracles exist in a completely atheistic universe.
2: Yeah, I mean, that that I think would be the necessity of contingency,
1: right? So, yeah.
2: Yeah,
0: Yeah, so... Something I, I was kind of thinking about, uh, you know, the Mads Mikkelsen character in this. Have you noticed that in action movies, the, the really violent guy has always got to be played by an, a very talented actor because it's hard to make that character feel like a real person, as you know, someone who could actually exist. So you need these phenomenally talented actors to play... And they're all playing the same role, really, yeah. whether it's the Liam Neeson version of that guy or, I don't know, the, the Jason Statham version of that guy. It's all the same guy, really. But you do need a quite talented person to do it or it just doesn't work.
1: I've never and if you that. have
0: that one person, none of the rest of the movie has to be good and it'll still reach this kind of mid-tier action movie level. Everything else can just be background. And, and I think what is really remarkable about this movie is that you've got that guy there to hook the person who is there just for that guy to see that guy do violent things. But then you actually have a, a supporting cast. Yeah. Which you almost yeah. never have in an action movie, an actual supporting cast. And then the supporting cast you know, makes it clear over the course of the film that this is the person who needs help. Yeah. Until finally, even he admits that he's the person who needs help. And ideally, by that point, the audience is long past admitting that he's the person who needs help.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like the the, the action figure as divided subject, you know, mm. which they always kind of are. But like, I mean, this is really kind of foregrounded.
2: Yeah, no, in that sense, it is quite subversive. I mean, you know, I, I get that. I, you know, I mean, it's true. We're, we're used to the trope of the the single. I don't know, the first-person shooter. I spoke to a, a psychoanalyst once who said that he felt that this is what contemporary masculinity was, was the first-person shooter uh, in the video game, this kind of, like, narrow thing. And Mark Fisher used to talk about the uh, the solitary urinal of male subjectivity, um, which I thought was amazing. You know, this this kind of, you know, strange sort of um, fixation on, on a kind of... Uh, Ploughing forward no matter what, um, often in a kind of violent or or, or kind of unhappy, unhappy way. And I I mean, I don't I don't necessarily think that does characterize all of masculinity. It's very interesting film called Chevalier, actually, which we Mm -hmm. should watch at some point, which is uh, about the competitive dimension of masculinity. It's very, very funny, very interesting film. Um, it would be a nice partner to this one, actually. So I, I get that this is a, a trying to subvert or, or actually succeeds in subverting the action figure, and of course, in the final scene, he's sitting there wearing a Christmas jumper. You know, like he's he's literally domesticated in the most obscene <laughs> way. Um, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, he what he's gained is is this this ramshackle family as well as his daughter back and um, so on. So yeah, I I think maybe maybe I, I was, I've been too. Hasty in my uh, literalism about the the violence, and
0: I, I could imagine some people on the right really being kind of pissed off about this movie mm-hmm. because by the end of the movie, the people that are kind of, you know, the the men that if you were doing the the Greek letters version are definitely not the alpha man. Mm. Uh, they're the ones who are kind of the heroes of this film because they provide this this therapeutic role and you know, kind of turn him into one of them, turn him into just another member of their group. And it's not even clear that he's the leader of the group. I think it's probably Otto who's the leader of the group. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So So this this guy, he's not the alpha in the group at the end of the movie, even though he has all of the traits that you might associate.
1: He's not even an alpha among beaters. (laughs) He's like... (laughs) I don't know, there's a, there's a weird thing that like, was some meme months ago, all these different categories of men with these like Greek alphabet letters, did not look into it, but I saw for a while that people were saying that they're this kind of man, that's like, right. Um, but talking about like um, maybe the, the right and certain films, um, it's interesting often, you know, films, films like this that maybe send up, that, that appear, that ha- use the kind of trope of violence and things like that to, to send up violence itself. And I've mentioned this maybe a couple of times it was a very good and funny film, The Hunt. Mm -hmm. And it was a film um, about, we actually did on my last podcast, The Hunt that Mads Mickelson is in. And then The Hunt that is an American movie from a couple of years ago that Trump tried. Trump really kind of um, bigged up and tried to get, you know, performatively cancelled. And it's a film about... Uh, elites killing um, deplorables for sport. And in a sense, you would think like, well, okay, he's saying that, you know, he he wants to cancel it because of this offensive content, which is often um, an argument used by the right against cancellation, you know, that you should have free speech or whatever, and don't take it literally, you know, it's not literally about um, you know, if you have a terrorist in a film, it's not that all people are terrorists or whatever, but he, he was using that kind of puritanical argumentation to, to get it canceled and it didn't have a big run. And it's really, you know, just because there was so much uproar about it, but actually the content of the film, you know, what, what is, what is the first level or the initial content in many kinds of really good films that that precisely, not only like on a story level, gets undercut, but like completely theoretically gets undercut. So it completely sends up, um, you know, this this tendency for, um, you know, for for, for scapegoating. Um, and it really is not an anti-deplorable film at all. It's very positive in terms of like the pl- deplorable characters, or at least ambivalent, you know. And um, in a sense, it was that ambivalence that needed to be cancelled, not, of course, the fact that it's deplorable being killed for sport, which confirms the right-wing narrative, you know it's the precise opposite that <laughs> it actually um, played, sent up, you know, what this um, it kind of exposed a sort of a violent truth in scapegoating. So, you know, it was disliked for that very reason, just as like masculinity is un- undercut in this film and potentially, yet yeah, the hyper masculine perspective um, might not enjoy it or might sort of feel some kind of antagonism towards it. Yeah. Hmm.
2: I think it's interesting that the boyfriend of the younger girl um, refuses to participate in the economy of violence. So there's a scene where the Mads Mikkelsen character, um, you know, is is, is physically violent towards the the boy. I mean, I guess they are they. I don't know how they are. 15, 16. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, something like that. Roughly,
2: maybe 16, 17. And the boy who's who looks very millennial, like I think he's got dyed hair and nail polish and I don't know, like has a kind of... um, you know, sort of slightly effeminate or millennial look, I don't know. <laughs> um, basically refuses, he, he's very into the therapeutic, his mother is a therapist, I think, and he he sort of uses some therapeutic language and, and you know, he's the one who also says that, you know, he's, he's got a problem, the Mads character. and But but it's interesting that he refuses to um, perpetuate the violence of that gesture, you know, like obviously you could say he he can't fight back because he's simply not that kind of man, but there certainly would be other ways he could have responded, like he could have reported him to the police or whatever. And he doesn't choose to do that either. Um, and I, I suppose then you have this kind of array of masculinities in this film, like,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know,
2: that, that it doesn't yeah. really decide for one or the other, but rather for the friendship of the different, I guess.
0: Yeah, because the Mickelson character does end up friends with everybody else by the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the boy also, he, he could also have tried to alienate the daughter from Mickelson. Uh, you know, that would be without calling the police. Mm-hmm. I think that's the much more common thing that happens in this kind of case. But he's constantly encouraging her to talk to him and to engage with him. And he comes over to the dinner and he accepts the apology so it's not even just, you know, he could take an avoidance strategy. He could try to avoid being in, the ro- in a room with the guy. He could tell the daughter that your dad's crazy and you shouldn't be around him. Uh, you know, he could call child protective Sur- uh, services and try to get them involved. There are a lot of passive aggressive things he could have done that, uh, you know, he doesn't do. And I think there's often an assumption that people have, just as I think a lot of people on the left assume that somebody like the Mickelson character's just got to be a psychopath. Mm-hmm. You know, like like earlier, you kind of suggested that maybe he was. I, I don't think you necessarily met that literally. You know, he ca- he maybe has a vibe that could be characterized that way. But there are a lot of guys who are just kind of taciturn and a bit withdrawn. But it doesn't mean that they don't have feelings. And he's capable of wearing, you know, the... This what you know the the Christmas jumper at the end and and he does seem to care about his daughter,
2: oh, for sure, I suppose I meant in the scenes where he's doing the violence where he's doing the kill yeah. i mean he becomes like a stone cold killer, right, like I mean he's just systematic and it's cl- very clearly depicting violence in that way, you know this is just yeah, some, his army training yeah. kicks
0: in, and he just kind of does, yeah, but uh you know just just as as the negative things that a person might feel about that character are subverted by the end of the film. A lot of people, I think, on the right, look at someone like the boyfriend and go, oh, he's just going to be somebody who's a snitch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just going to be someone. At one point, he does get accused of being a snitch mm-hmm. when he too readily offers to give up information to the to the gang. Uh, and they they break a bunch of his fingers. But he doesn't even know what he's why he's being interrogated. He doesn't know what the situation is because he's been consistently deceived throughout the film. So why would he? think to uh, withhold information from these people. He has no idea why they're looking for the person that they're looking for. So I think that uh, also a lot of the tropes that people associate with that character kind of played with, you know, the young person who's got a social theory and think he thinks he can explain the whole world. Mm-hmm. And of course he can't. And, and the Mickelson character is kind of, you know, right. right about that. He can't explain everything. And he kind of jumps to conclusions a bit. There's, there is one scene where there. are uh, They're doing the therapy and the therapy because it's not real therapy. (laughs) And there's a kind of moment where it becomes obvious that it's not real therapy. But the boyfriend wants to believe it's an unconventional method because he really (laughs) wants to think that's what's going on. And by having this delusive thought that it must just be an unconventional method, he lets them off the hook. Mm -hmm. and, And that prevents everybody from finding out. So there are some some areas where he gets sent up and he gets made, made, you know, the the movie acknowledges his limits and flaws as well. So, yeah, I think this point that it's kind of different kinds of men all finding ways to be part of the same group, uh, you know, in a way where none of them is is treated badly. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, even the people that you would think would be treated badly find a role in the group that works for them. And it, it's not about trying to, to say that some kind of men are better and mm-hmm. other kinds of men are worse. And, and so much of that like Greek letter of the alphabet man stuff is about trying to tier men and place men in hierarchies in relation to each other. Uh, and here we we have a way of of acknowledging that there are lots of different ways to be a man, but you can still, you know, those don't have to be ranked.
1: Yeah. No, it's... Um... We haven't talked like that much about one event um, where someone, uh, where I can't remember the name of character, um, the one that's been abused uh, uses it. Well, he he does something kind of quite shocking and random to get uh, Mads Mikkelsen off his case. You know, um, he feels like he's going to be beaten up and he sort of like exposes himself in a field. And it's just sort of like so shocking and random that it kind of. Um... But
2: it's not. But it's not random. I mean, I mentioned yeah. it briefly before because, it, yeah. in a way, it's that it's what happened to him as a child. He's he's uh, uh, in a way I don't know. Integrated it as a kind of bizarre technique or tactic. Yeah. So I mean, it's not random in the sense that you don't know where it comes from because you know that he yeah, was yeah. abused as a child in this way. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a kind of both shocking and funny scene, right? Yeah, like because yeah, yeah, because it it it's it's so um obscene in a way that the the violence can't be perpetuated on this body right yeah, yeah. Be- because it it's you know he's proffering his arse too (laughs) and you can't you can't punch someone in the ass if they're like on their knees like it would just be weird and wrong i I know you sort of punch people anyway but you know (laughs) what is that like that it's not someone squaring
1: up to you or you know cowering (laughs) yeah he's reducing himself to so little of a person that um yeah what do you do with that Mm, but just leave it
0: yeah at a certain point if you strike someone in that pose you, you yeah, are diminished by striking yeah. by striking someone who's reduced themselves to such a low point. Yeah. You know, th- there's nothing Mads Mikkelsen can do. Everyone is watching him. The, the rest of the group is watching him. So if he goes and, and hits yeah. this guy, when this guy is in this pose, he himself will be lowered in the eyes of everyone for having done that. And so it ceases to be an effective way of disciplining the group. And instead, it, it just becomes... Uh, yeah a kind of pathetic moment. really, mm-hmm. you're going to hit this guy, this guy who obviously can't fight back? yeah,' there's a- and, and by putting himself in that pose, it just becomes overwhelmingly obvious if it wasn't obvious already because he's running away through a field uh, <laughs> that he really cannot fight back.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of like kind of sexual humiliation, obviously, which does come into, you know. Um, I guess the same thing of this, like, hyper-masculinity and, and violence and stuff, This sort of sending up of how ridiculous a lot of things to do with sex are. Um, but also, I obviously, the uh, the story that the um, the kind of traditional Ukrainian tale that the... I love the way you call him mm. an au pair. Is he called an au pair in the film? I just love that term. It's so funny. Yeah. But is he? he is called an au pair in the film. But um, um, he... Yeah, he tells a story about about um yeah this this uh, like a canonical kind of myth or a fable in in his home country about a woman who um i can't remember the exact details of it but it's sort of this highly poetic poeticized story about i think a, a
2: bear bites off a ring on her finger like a beautiful engagement ring or something like that. exactly and she it like
1: a young bear and then um 10 years later, she's hunting in and in a, in a bear who's 10 years older than the baby bear was when she, her, um, his finger was bitten off, is in this sort of moonlit scene at exactly the same time on exactly the same day. And we talked about this with, you know, Instagram, as you know, the um, regime aesthetics with the sort of like poeticism equals some kind of that, you know, transcendent truth, some elevation to connection to oneness, you know. Um, it must you know, if it rhymes. People used to say this all the time when I used to do sports, there were these sort of rhyming things like, if in doubt, leave it out. And they used to do this in, um, uh, I used to do, we did uh, cadets at boarding school, CCF at school, I was in the Marines. If it ain't raining, it ain't raining. So all these things like this, where you have these like phrases, that if, if there's some kind of rhyme or quote unquote poeticism, it must be true, it must mm. be real. You know, it, 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 there's some kind of connection with the divine. So in this in this scene, you know, the, the moon is shining; it's you know, white light casting it over the scene. And this exactly, this, the clock strikes twelve. It's exactly back to the way it was, et cetera. Et cetera. And um, no, she she he uh, the the woman kills the bear, cuts it open, and there is no ring inside. This is not the bear that took He's, her ring. He says, "There's nothing." There's nothing. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: This is, this is just the end of the, <laughs> the
2: paper. But in a, in a way, a ring is nothing, too, right? Like, you know, I don't know how to put it. I mean, of course, the story is deflationary and, and it's sort of like yeah. this, this sort of deliberately awkward moment, and then people think we're waiting for the, for the payoff. But I, I don't know. On another level, the story is actually very profound.
1: <laughs> I know. Mean, it just sort of hit you a second time thinking about it. the first one. You're like, well, that doesn't work as a. It? But it actually, you know, it does.
0: Yeah even if there was a ring how much difference would that really have made
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah and I think also like this thing about you know the rarefication of nothing which you get in some kind of um religious or spiritual um ways of understanding what the nothing is is like that okay we might say we shouldn't reify the nothing that like the nothing is not a thing this is a co- like core tenant of existentialism but actually like the nothing kind of is if not something it's it's also like uh, how to put it like the nothing mm-hmm. is an object for thought at least you know it's it's in a way not it's nothing. a concept <laughs> yeah it's a concept right
0: and, and you know any good rationalist recognizes that concepts are something yeah <laughs> they're just a different kind of something
2: yeah so the no- I love the nothing because the nothing is also tied to the naughty so if you think about the naught. You know, so what it means to be naughty is to play with the nothing. And I really like this idea because it's like, uh, especially if you oppose the naught to the zero, because the invention of zero has basically led us to this point. This is why we're on computers. You know, the zero turns up at a certain point. It's invented by an Indian mathematician. Um, So zero is a placeholder for a long time in human history. But then the moment you start using it to multiply, things get wildly out of control very quickly. Um, so the Greeks and the Bible, there's no concept of zero for the Greeks, mm-hmm. the ancient Greeks, or there's no concept of zero in the Bible. So zero is this kind of almost like alien technology, some people imagine, um, that's, that's, that sort of transforms everything, right? So we, we live in the, the era of the zero, whereas the nothing is, I think, much more more gentle. You know, it's like this sort of almost cute, naughty thing. <laughs> I think we should we should get rid of the zero. There's no way that we can do this, but if we could, we should go back before There's we go no way back, the zero. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So what what would happen if we got rid of the zero? Oh. What would be the consequences? Well we of that?
1: wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't be computers. You wouldn't have you wouldn't have this like exponential kind of mm. proliferation. Yes. But how did like how do they count to like 100 because obviously yeah like roman in numerals like you have the because they, they can count to 50 but i guess obviously the 50 is you a 50 can count to 100 five, there's a
0: roman numeral for 100
1: yeah but c. but it's not like you know you don't visualize the 100 as 100 right you know it's like no it's 10 you can visualize 10, it as c. as c yeah yeah so yeah. It, i mean you
2: don't necessarily need that big numbers like when do we start as a as a you know, collective needing massive numbers. I mean obviously we have billionaires and stuff now. Yes. Yeah. But okay. it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's get we just Stop
0: got rid of the zero. Uh, the robots had some relatively big numbers. you know yeah. M with a line. Yeah, it's a pretty big How number. How was that? Oh, if you start put adding lines to Roman numerals, mm-hmm. you can make them exponentially large. Oh,
1: I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah, and it did. You know, there's a lot of proliferation going on then. I guess not quite the level of prol- proliferation today, but yeah. yeah. So you can you can M is a thousand, right? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. So M M with a line was that like a thousand, a thousand?
0: I think I think something like that. Oh, I used to. There was a time when I was in eighth grade. You knew this. Yeah, because in American (laughs) schools, you have to do math all the time, whether you want to or you don't. So there was a time when I was in eighth grade when I just decided I was going to do all of my math homework in Roman numerals.
1: sounds quite obnoxious it does no well, I, I, I did that
0: i did this for for quite a while actually no. just oh uh all my math homework in Roman numerals just uh it was my little way of inserting something that was from the subject i wanted to be studying into math
2: <laughs> your teacher must have adored you Benjamin. Yeah. <laughs> um yes, yeah yeah I-
1: you do have to do math for lo- a long time in america like i can't believe like you know for instance, like you can, like GCSE math is where we have to do it up to you. And it's like, it's with a limit of GCSEs, it's not like, you know, the easiest thing. There is quite a lot to know, but it's it's none of the stuff where it suddenly does become, it's, it's basically adding, subtracting algebra, but like, you know, you can get hard versions of it, but it's not, nothing to do with sort of like, um what is it? Like, I did it like, because at least some A-level math and I can't even remember what's in it, but you know, the kind of like slightly more extrapolatory kind of stuff and like um, all these weird equations and graphs and shit like that. But you have to do that in America. Like that's mean. Why do you okay, need to so do that?
0: I've I've double checked <laughs> it. If you put a line over a number, it's multiply it by a thousand. So mm-hmm. M with a line over it is a million.
1: M with a line is a million. Okay.
0: Yeah. And you can imagine in Roman censuses and yeah, yeah, yeah you you would need that there would be occasions.
1: This yes. is quite difficult because it's like not having that 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 sort of decimal thing it makes it so much more difficult to get your head around an amount.
2: Yeah, but you know, if you've just got twigs and and the old bit of food what do you need to care, really <laughs> like, you know, you're like Well, Stop.
0: you you'd use an abacus. <laughs> yeah, you'd oh, use true. something yeah. like that. Yeah.
1: You know, I like that world, you know, it's a a human-sized world. French numbers are absolutely hilarious. To be very Malcolm Gladwell about it, I know this is part of um, Outliers, but he's, you know, one of his sort of like, um, you know, overly simplified reasons why people in... you better at maths is because um of the single syllable um numbers for um that go up to quite quite a large amount so when you when you multiply as a young person you're first doing maths it's much more easy you know mentally whereas if you're in france and you're doing like 90 times 90 well it's four times 20 plus 10 is 90 and 99 is four times 20 plus 10 plus 9 is 99 and then like it's actually quite and uh, it's, uh, like people who learn french for instance like we spend like your A-levels, you have to do like reading exercises, your oral or whatever, and you have to like read a date. And the people who maybe have been studying French since they were three by the time they are 18 or whenever, literally will always get to the number and be like, "Fuck!" <laughs> like, how do I say this? It's like a thousand, nine hundred, and let's say, you know, four times twenty plus ten plus, you know. I like so its point,
2: pointless forms of linguistic resistance. I just yes, think exactly. France is right like, to keep exactly. its silly language. <laughs> exactly.
0: That's very interesting. You know, I could just imagine you know, somebody who's one of those like rapid cultural theorists who yeah. wants to explain every social phenomenon through a small, a small Quirk, cultural yeah. fact yeah. would go, ah, the reason the French have resisted neoliberalism is that their language doesn't allow exactly. the social sciences yeah. to so easily be turned into uh, quant disciplines.
1: Exactly. I once was sitting next to Malcolm Gladwell in a coffee shop and stuff sort of <laughs> oh, was God's like sake. I was like sort of like very disapprovingly on a phone conversation talking about how I was next to Malcolm Gladwell and I was like shit you can probably hear me but um famous yes, people is, are people too Helen I think that's yeah. an ideological lie I think people are people uh-huh. and people are people are, but anyway but he yeah um that's, his stuff is very satisfying it's very satisfying but I don't think it's quite you know um like Correct. a donut is satisfying <laughs> But um, in, in Belgium um, they say uh, septante octante and nonante in a way right. that French would say 60 plus 10 soixante for 70 quatre for 20, four times 20 so they, and then four times 20 plus 10 for 90 so they do like there's some places that aren't France where they speak French where they rationalise it boo yeah. I like Belgium a lot Belgium's a great country oh yeah it might be great
2: in other ways <laughs> Someone was telling me Brussels has an amazing club scene recently.
1: Probably does.
2: Wow.
1: Has great food. Actually, I mean, you're also allowed to go clubbing very young.
2: Oh, yeah, cool.
1: Yeah. So,
2: um... actually, you know, what am I talking about? And there's some amazing Belgian new beat. There's some fantastic music in Belgium mm-hmm. from, from a while ago. But apparently the club scene at least two, three years ago was still great. I don't know. I just go to golf clubs. I don't know anything about clubbing. And I go about my once, brother. My
0: brother, being American, whenever he visits a European country, he insists on driving through it. Yes. And so his impression of European countries is very heavily influenced by how easy they are to drive in. Mm-hmm. And he has nothing but awful things to say about driving in Belgium. Yeah, I mean... Apparently it is the worst <laughs> is, European I have to country to drive I remember being in, in a
1: seven-hour traffic jam as a child in Belgium. So... It, it, there were also it was like very dangerous in many ways outside of driving but anyway yeah, yeah.
0: well this is a digression if I've ever heard one mm-hmm. and we're at about an hour so we're going to wrap up we're going to go do the b-side uh, for the Patreon listeners thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day Bye-bye. bye 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 bye